but it certainly raises the issue of uh, what should we as believers and what should we as a church do with those who struggle in varying degrees with same-sex attraction. Well, as you well know, in the summer of 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, delivered a long-awaited ruling uh, in a five-to-four decision. Uh, the court announced that uh, the Constitution requires that same-sex couples be allowed to marry no matter where they live. Very simply, the court ruled that same-sex marriage is now legal in all 50 states, and that overturned state rules and, or state laws against same-sex marriage in more than 30 of our states. Uh, as of today, there are about two dozen nations around the world that sanction same-sex marriage, and no doubt that number is going to continue to rise in the days ahead. If you will go to the next slide. Um, Dr. Jeffrey Satinover is uh, uh, someone who's done a lot of study on this issue, and he's considered to be an expert on it. And uh, he said there's basically a, a consensus, a basic proposition that is brought to us uh, by those in the gay community. And it has three propositions in it. Number one, as a matter of biology, he says, homosexuality is an innate, genetically determined aspect of the human body. Now this Jeffrey Satinover is a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, a physicist, and he's an Orthodox Jew. And uh, so he's writing about this really from an Orthodox Jewish perspective. And he said one of the things he finds as an argument is basically, first of all, I was born this way. I didn't ask for this. Uh, this was given to me. And it's in my genes. There's nothing I can do about it. And then he said, number two, as a matter of psychology, homosexuality is irreversible. In other words, I was born this way, I cannot change. Not only can I not change, but it's wrong for you to try to change me. And number three, he said, as a matter of sociology, homosexuality is normal, akin to such other social categories as sex and race. In other words, it is normal to me. Now, Dr. Satinhover is not defending those positions. He's just acknowledging that those are three of the leading arguments that the gay community presents to us. Number one, I was born this way. It was genetically determined that I would be gay. Number two, I can't change what my genes gave me. And number three, it's normal or it's natural to me. And Dr. Satinover says, quote, when combined, these three propositions are used to form a powerful argument in favor of normalizing homosexuality. All right, next slide, please. And Dr. Satinover says, there is a traditional response to these three 
propositions. And those three responses are, number one, homosexuality is a choice. You were not born that way, you chose to be that way. Number two, it is reversible. You can change, and further, you should change. And number three, it is not normal, nor is it natural. It's either an illness or it is a perversion of nature. So Dr. Satinover lays out those primary arguments, and you've probably heard all of them before. I was born this way, I can't change, and it's natural to me. And you've heard the three primary responses, and that is, it's a choice, you can change, and it's not normal. Uh, and no doubt those points of view will continue uh, to be in conflict uh, for a long period of time. But our purpose is to see if God's word has anything to say about these propositions, and more specifically, if God's word has anything to say about those who struggle with same-sex attraction, and if so, what we as believers need to do about that. Next slide, please. As we get started, it's important for us to draw some distinctions. There is a difference between the temptation that's known as unwanted same-sex attraction and same-sex desires and behaviors. In other words, there is a difference between a temptation that comes upon some people where they recognize an attraction to a member of the same sex. That's one thing. Being tempted is not a sin, but you cross the line when you embrace those temptations, uh, you uh, nurture them, you pursue them, and they spill over into actions. So in other words, and we'll see this in God's word, there are individuals who are naturally attracted to members of the same sex. There's an, there's an acknowledgement of a temptation there. In and of itself, that temptation is not a sin. But where it crosses the line to being a sin is when that becomes strong desires and lusts, and on top of that, when it rolls over into behavior. So that's an important distinction that scripture makes that we need to understand as well. Okay, next slide. Now there's some key definitions we need to make sure we're clear on. First of all, homosexuality, um, many definitions of it, I just went to the dictionary. Homosexuality is erotic activity with another of the same sex. Next slide. Homosexuality is not the same as gender identity. Gender identity is how people experience themselves as male or female, including how masculine or feminine they feel. Next slide. Gender dysphoria, which we're hearing a lot about these days. Gender dysphoria refers to deep and abiding discomfort over the incongruence between one's biological sex and one's psychological and emotional experience of gender. 
And these definitions here on gender identity and gender dysphoria come from Mark Yarhouse. Mark Yarhouse is the leading Christian scholar on this issue. Now, we're not going to talk this afternoon about gender identity and gender dysphoria, the transgender debate. I made reference to that book on the transgender debate written by a, a Christian uh, and a Southern Baptist, and it is an excellent resource for understanding and dealing with this issue. But uh, our focus today is going to be uh, focusing on same-sex attraction, homosexual lust and homosexual behavior. Okay, next slide, please. Okay, we're going to look just very briefly uh, at seven key truths that we find in Scripture that deal with the issue of same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior. Next slide. Number one, the Bible condemns all forms of sexual behavior outside the bonds of heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong marriage. Uh, homosexuality uh, is uh, the, both the lusts, homosexual lust, and homosexual behavior are clearly described in Scripture as sinful. Uh, nevertheless, it is no more sinful than the sin of uh, addiction to online pornography, or cheating on your husband, or cheating on your wife, or living with someone else outside the bonds of marriage, uh, or any of those other sexual lusts and behaviors that God's word describes as sinful. Uh, sometimes I think we as Christians have created a special class of sexual sin called homosexuality. And we rail against homosexuality while we have deacons in our church and people in our choirs and Sunday school teachers who are cheating on their husbands or their wives or they're living with their girlfriend. And we don't say anything about that. Uh, that's really to our shame, but it doesn't excuse homosexual lust and homosexual behavior. So the point here is that the Bible condemns all forms of sexual behavior outside the bonds of heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong marriage. That is the foundation for everything uh, that we're going to explore here on same-sex attraction. Okay, next slide, please. God has spoken clearly on sexuality and marriage. Um, the Bible never speaks of homosexuality in a positive or even a neutral light. Sexual relations between members of the same gender always in Scripture are depicted as sinful. Next slide. Now, we won't take the time to read all of these and explore these, but I want to list them for you, and I'll just talk very briefly about each of these. Um, if you either get the Apologist Toolkit or you buy that little book on what every Christian should know about same-sex attraction, it will go into some detail 
on each of these passages. But when we talk specifically about uh, homosexuality, there are six passages in scripture that deal directly with this issue. In Genesis chapter 19, uh, verse 5, this has to do with the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, And it talks about um, when uh, the residents of Sodom uh, came to the door um, where uh, Lot was and where he had the two angels. Um, The residents of Sodom wanted him to send those two men out or those two angels out so we can know them. Some translations say know them. Other translations say have sex with them. And here's where some uh, people who try to defend the same-sex position say, well, look, they only wanted for Lot to show the hospitality that should be shown. And the sin of Sodom was a lack of proper hospitality here uh, because they wanted to know them. Well, when the Bible uses that term know, it can mean to have a, a knowledge of or it can mean to have a relationship with, but in certain contexts, it simply means to have sexual relations with. Adam knew Eve and bore a child. Uh, So we can see that, and in the context of what we see here, and what we see in other passages of scripture that refer back to the sin of Sodom. When we see that referred to in the book of Jude and in other places, it talks about sexual immorality and perversion. So them wanting to know those two angels is clearly a reference to homosexual sex. So Genesis 19.5 is one very clear reference. Now some defenders of homosexuality will say, well, yeah, well, look, what they wanted to do was homosexual rape. And obviously God would be against that, but God would not be against Uh, loving relationships between two members of the same sex. That's reading into the scripture something that's not there. The Bible states consistently and repeatedly that the sin of Sodom was sexual perversion. The very desire to have sexual intimacy with a member of the same sex and to lust after a member of the same sex is sinful. And then to carry that out further crosses the line. Then we have two passages in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, and Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. And those both come from what's known as the holiness code. And they make it very clear that a man should not lie with another man as with a woman. And uh, so that's very clear. And some people who object to that will say, well, look, In the holiness code, it also says don't sow two kinds of seed together. It also says don't eat shellfish. Uh, It also says don't use two different kinds of fabrics to sew together to make a garment. So if you're going to insist today that uh, those passages in Leviticus talk against homosexuality, you better not be wearing a polyester shirt. And uh, I don't want to see you at Red Lobster. Um, and uh, that sort of thing. So you say, okay, well, what do I do with that? Well, when you come to difficult passages like there, the holiness quote did deal specifically with 
the Jewish people and God was setting them apart. He was marking them as distinct people from the pagans around them. In some cases, he had these rather bizarre things like don't eat shellfish for their health and also don't mix these two kinds of garments or these two kinds of seeds to show a very clear distinction. It was sort of a badge of honor. But what did God destroy the nations around Israel for? What did God displace the residents of Canaan for? Was it because they sowed two different kinds of seed? Because they wore polyester? Because they wore shellfish? No. He destroyed them for their wickedness and particularly their sexual immorality. And so when we look at the holiness code, we can easily see emerging from the holiness code certain things that apply to all people at all times in all circumstances. And homosexual behavior does that here. Then we get to the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, talks about uh, men and women and their degrading passions. Um, uh, it talks about women giving up the, the natural uh, attraction for men, for other women, men doing the same. And uh, Paul says that this is a result of those who have rejected the revelation of God in creation and in conscience, and they've become so depraved in their thinking that God gives them over to these kinds of sins. So homosexuality and lesbianism, Paul uses as examples of what happens when someone becomes so depraved, they follow the twisted um, lusts and passions of their heart. Uh, and once again, people who would object to that will say, well, you see, Paul says women left the natural use of man for women. So the sin here was that heterosexual women uh, explored lesbian relationships and they shouldn't have done that. Or heterosexual men explored homosexual relations and they shouldn't have done that because they weren't born that way. Well, that's not what Paul is saying at all. Paul is describing people who become so depraved that their sinful lusts spill over into behaviors and God just gives them over and says, have it your way but a day of reckoning is coming. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, uh, Paul gives us a list, uh, a similar list in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, which talks about individuals who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And included in that um, are those who practice homosexuality. Um, and... Paul here is talking, again, it doesn't mean that a person who has engaged in homosexual behavior can't be saved any more than an adulterer or a murderer or a liar or a greedy person can be saved. He's talking about those who engage in an unrepentant lifestyle, who will not recognize the standards of God, will not turn to Christ in belief and repentance for deliverance from those. They're going to live life on their terms, their way, and uh, they will ultimately face the consequences of not being in the kingdom of heaven. Everywhere the Bible speaks about homosexuality, it describes it with terms like this. I just pulled a few descriptions out of scripture passages. It, 
homosexual conduct is described as an abomination, degrading, unnatural, shameless, and a perversion. Those who commit same-sex acts refuse to acknowledge them as sinful and reject the call of repentance are outside the kingdom of God. There is no such thing as a practicing gay Christian. Okay? Now, we'll talk about this more later. That doesn't mean that a believer will never struggle with same-sex attraction uh, any more than a believer is not going to struggle with heterosexual lust or be tempted to turn the computer on and download pornography. Uh, when God saves us, we nevertheless continue to live in the sinful and fallen world that exists until God redeems us. But the difference is God gives us his Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to overcome these kinds of temptations. But for someone to say, as this person did in the email to the pastor I read you at the start, I am a gay Christian. I see nothing wrong with homosexual behavior. I'm going to continue to practice my homosexual behavior, and I want you to acknowledge it, and I even want you to celebrate it with me. This person has a wrong understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Okay? Next slide. Number three, God's creative intent for sexual relations and marriage is good. God created us male and female. He designed us in unique and complementary ways so that we would enjoy a sexual union in the bonds of heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong marriage. Uh, God not only created man and woman, he created sexual intimacy. It's a good thing. God wants us to enjoy it. He wants us to take pleasure in it. He wants us to see the protection and the intimacy in it. Uh, and he wants it for us to do as he commanded, to populate the earth, to replenish, to procreate. And so God's creative intent for sexual relations and marriage is good. And we should never forget uh, that. Uh, what happens is sin ruins everything. God created everything good, and sin ruins everything. And so sin ruins the very good that God created in sexual relations in the bonds of heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong marriage. Next slide, please. Number four, Jesus affirms Old Testament teachings about sexuality and marriage. Now, there are some who will say, well, if homosexuality is such a big deal, why didn't Jesus say something about it? Well, he did. Not directly, but he does so in a very unique way in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Um, as you may recall, here's where the Pharisees confront Jesus after he crosses over the Jordan River into Judea, and they ask him, 
Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? So the Pharisees want to talk about divorce. Well, rather than indulge them in a conversation about failed marriages, Jesus takes them back to the Garden of Eden. And he tells them, haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. And so here, the Pharisees are asking about divorce, but Jesus is telling about God's creative intent for sexuality and marriage. God made them male and God made them female. And the idea is the two would become one through the intimacy and the bonds of marriage. And what God has put together, people should not attempt to separate. Well, the Pharisees weren't completely happy with that answer, so they asked a follow-up question. And they said, why then did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? Jesus' answer is very interesting. He says, Moses permitted them, not commanded them like the Pharisees said. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart. But it was not like that from the beginning. Uh, divorce was what's known as a divine accommodation. Uh, God allowed that to happen under very strict circumstances. Um, not that God lowered his standards, but that man was so depraved um, that God permitted that because of the hardness of the human heart. So clearly, God has not changed his standards. He's not changed his reason for creating men and women in his likeness, uh, nor has his divine accommodation in allowing for divorce under terms of the Mosaic law lowered his standards for sexual purity and marriage. There is no divine accommodation for homosexual conduct. So Jesus did address the issue by addressing the foundational issue of human sexuality and marriage. Anything outside that, including homosexual lust and homosexual behavior, falls outside of that and therefore is sinful. Next slide. Number five. Christians share with our gay friends a struggle against sinful desires. I think this is maybe an important way that we can address our friends who struggle with same-sex attraction. Sin is the lowest common denominator of all human beings. We are all 
sinful. Uh, we all are vulnerable. We're not necessarily vulnerable in the same ways. And so one of the things we might be able to do in dealing with our homosexual friends, say, you don't know what it's like to have same-sex attraction. And we can say, you're, you're absolutely right. I don't know what that's like. But I do know what it's like uh, to have heterosexual lust. Uh, I do know what it's like to be tempted in a variety of other ways. All of us are broken. Uh, sin has broken us all. And uh, God has promised not only to redeem us now, to forgive us of the penalty of sin, but he promises through the indwelling Holy Spirit to, to break the power of sin over us and one day to totally break even the presence of sin. But until that time, we're going to walk through a sinful and fallen world we are going to be uh, drawn to sin in a variety of different ways, uh, some with same-sex uh, lust and other people with heterosexual lust, um, a violent anger, um, uh, uncontrolled habits of other kind. There are a variety of ways that sin manifests itself in us. And so we share with our gay friends the struggle against sinful desires. Let's go to the next slide. People can change. Uh, I love what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul gives us that list of people who are outside of the kingdom of heaven. And he includes in that list those who are unrepentant, practicing, homosexuals. Uh, and you know, Paul says, do you not know that the unjust will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Paul doesn't stop there. I love the next verse. He says, some of you were like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is telling Corinthian believers that some of them were swindlers. Some of them were drunkards. Some of them were thieves. Some of them were male prostitutes. Some of them were homosexuals. But God did something in their lives. He washed them. That means he regenerated them. He made them spiritually alive when his spirit came into their dead human spirit. And so they became spiritually alive. And he says, you were sanctified. That means you were set apart. You are marked off as belonging to God once and forevermore. And you were justified. You were acquitted of your sins. The penalty for your sins has been transferred to the account of Christ. And the righteousness of Christ has been transferred to your account. Um, now, with that in mind, we might be led to think that if we could just get 
a homosexual or lesbian to profess faith in Christ. They would never be tempted again by same-sex desires and attractions. And um, I don't know any of you. Some of you may have struggled your whole life uh, with a bad temper uh, or a quick tongue um, or some other bad habit. And you know when you got saved that didn't cure it completely. But you do know you have the indwelling Holy Spirit who gives you a way out when you're tempted to do those things now. And hopefully, in fits and starts, as you grow in your walk with the Lord, you have more of an ability to walk away from that temptation and more of an ability to walk away from that temptation. It would be the same way with same-sex lusts and behaviors. Um, in, in reading uh, testimonies of people who were saved from a lifestyle of homosexual uh, or lesbian um, lust and behavior, uh, many of them will say, you know, God saved me dramatically. And some will say, I just never went back. I mean, that, God just saved me. I know I have to be careful about that, uh, but I didn't have it. Others will be more honest and they will say, well, not more honest, they will have a different experience. And they will say, uh, God saved me. He put new desires in my heart. He gave me the ability to overcome that. I have to admit, I still struggle really hard with same-sex attractions. And, and a couple of times I even engaged in those. And, and I, I feel horrible about that. Um, and I know that has a strong pull on me. And so we have to be patient and kind with anybody who comes out of the, that strong attraction and that strong lust. Now, Jer Jeffrey Satinhover, uh, the Orthodox Jew I told you about a little while ago, wrote a book called Homosexuality and the Politics of Truth. And he writes that like all complex behavioral and mental states, homosexuality is multifactorial. In other words, there are many contributing factors to homosexuality. There is no such thing as a magic bullet that explains why someone has same-sex attraction. You cannot say there's a gay gene, that it's purely genetics and nothing else. You can't say totally, well, I just woke up one day and decided to become a homosexual. There's a, a mix, and Dr. Satinhover says in his studies that there are a number of factors and they they vary in their degree of impact on different people. So let me just share a few of those with you. He said there is uh, a factor that is genetic. And he says it's not a determining factor. In other words, there's not a gene that says you're going to be homosexual or you're going to be lesbian. But he says there are certain characteristics that could contribute to a person being perceived as different. And he used the example, he said, suppose you have a, a boy, and he says this boy has small hands and smooth skin and high cheekbones and feminine features. And uh, uh, dad makes fun of him at home, calls him his little girly boy, and uh, mom makes fun of him, and the kids at school say, call him girl names and stuff like that. That person uh, may begin to think there's really something different about me. Uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm different from everybody else, and maybe what that means is that I'm homosexual. And so 
Dr. Satinover says those genetic factors don't determine it, but he said they can be a small contributing factor that may cause some people to question, maybe I'm different from everybody else. Secondly, he says, there are prenatal influences. Um, there are hormones, uh, the general health of the mother and so on. He says there are some prenatal factors that can be a, a contributing factor, but again, they don't determine sexual attraction, but they can contribute. Next, he says, there is the postnatal envir environment or the, the, really the family life, the home life. Uh, if you live in an environment where you're exposed to homosexuality, if you live in a home environment where um, uh, boys are picked on for feminine features, um, if you're in uh, a home environment where perhaps uh, you are a victim of uh, sexual abuse by one parent or another parent, he said those go a long way oftentimes in causing people um, to be, uh, to, again, to question their sexuality and perhaps to experiment with homosexuality. And then he says another factor is reinforced choices occurring at critical phases of development. Reinforced choices. In other words, if someone is sexually abused as a little boy or a little girl, um, they may feel that's the only way that they can receive the love and affection of other people. And so when they get a little older and they have an opportunity to engage in homosexual behavior, they try it. And, um, and it's a way of gaining acceptance, perhaps. It's a way of gaining uh, affirmation of their value as a person. So those are some of the factors that Dr. Satinover says he's discovered in his years of study that may contribute in varying degrees to someone experiencing same-sex attraction. Again, he says there's not a magic bullet. You're not born gay but neither do you totally choose to be that way. You do not wake up one morning and decide, hmm, I guess I'm homosexual. I guess I'm lesbian. I'm just gonna go that way from now on. He says it's much more complex with that. And you know, sin works that way in our lives, doesn't it? Complex factors work together uh, to create a wide variety of things. But Dr. Satinover also says, people can change, just as the Apostle Paul says. Uh, the dirty little secret uh, that the gay community does not want us to know is that even secular therapy, totally, totally divorced of any religious concepts or beliefs, but secular therapy is about as successful in helping to change homosexual behavior as treatment for depression. People who go to counseling for depression are helped at about the same rate as people who go to counseling for help with unwanted same-sex attraction. Um, he said, furthermore, um, when, you, when you mix uh, religious beliefs, Judaism or Christianity, in with that, he said the success rate is even 
higher. So he said if you look at it just from a clinical standpoint, people can change. And again, for the person who comes to faith in Christ, who recognizes that their same-sex lusts and behavior are sinful, and they want to turn from that, God gives them the indwelling Holy Spirit. He gives them the power over sin. He gives them a way out. But that doesn't mean that they will never be tempted again by same-sex lust and encouraged to engage in same-sex behavior. You and I know that because we continue to do the same stupid things we've been doing all our life, even though God has saved us from that, and even though we know that it's wrong. So we need to cut our, our Christian friends who struggle with same-sex attraction. We need to give them the same break we give ourselves, um, which leads to number seven, our last point. We should welcome into our churches those struggling with same-sex attraction. Now, it's important to understand what I mean by that and what I don't mean. Here's what I don't mean by that. I don't mean if someone comes to us as a local church and says, I am a gay man. Um, God made me this way. God loves me just the way I am. Uh, I don't see anything wrong with homosexual behavior. I want to come to your church. Uh, I want to bring my partner with me. And even at some point, uh, when I get to know the pastor a little better, I want the pastor to marry us here in this church. And then we want to be actively engaged in all of the ministries of the church. That's not what I mean by welcoming uh, homosexuals and lesbians into the church. But here's what I do mean. If someone comes and says, I am struggling with unwanted same-sex attraction. I acknowledge that it's sinful and wrong. I also acknowledge it's extremely powerful. It has a strong pull on me. I need a community of believers to come beside me and to help hold me accountable and to help me escape those attractions, those lusts, and those behaviors. Would you allow me to come and be a part of your congregation? That's where we would say, absolutely. And so let me read to you the answer. Remember the email at the start, the person who said he was a gay Christian and wanted to be actively involved in the church. Here's a portion of the response by the pastor, David Prince. As to your question, it depends on what you mean by I am a gay man and what you mean by accepted completely with no judgment and fully welcome and able to serve. If by I am a gay man, you mean that you struggle with same-sex attraction, recognizing any sexual activity outside of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman is sinful, and that you desire Christian discipleship to walk in line with the gospel as you struggle with this temptation, then we would rejoice and, uh, in, in your openness and receive you gladly. We have faithful and accountable members right now in that very situation and attempting to live celibate lives to the glory of Christ. If by I am a gay man, 
you mean that you embrace a lifestyle of homosexual activity and you refuse to recognize it as a sin, no matter what scripture says, and you are looking for a church that will affirm homosexual activity and or same-sex marriage, that is a different matter entirely. There is a world of difference between struggling with a sin and embracing a sin. God saves us where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. He is at work conforming his people into the image of Christ. I just thought that was a great answer to this person's question. And I think it helps us see that how we can and how we should welcome into our churches those struggling with same-sex attraction. Well, let me stop here and leave the last 10 minutes for you uh, to share your thoughts or to ask questions.